Hello, everyone, and welcome to Social Work Radio. My name is Vince Peart, and I am your host. I'm also content editor for Social Work News. Social Work Radio is a brand new podcast show. We're going to be coming out on a weekly basis, and we are going to be covering all the stories that matter to social workers all across the world, UK, Australia, America, Canada, Europe, South America. I could go on. We have people who follow us in 120 different countries. So hopefully there will be something for you all. On tonight's show, I'm joined by my co-host, Tilly Baden. Tilly, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hello, everyone. So thank you, Vince. Uh, My name is Tilly Baden. I'm um, one of the writers at Social Work News, one of the columnists. Um, I'm also obviously a social worker Um, that goes without saying being on a social work podcast Um, so I am currently employed in a local authority in the southwest of England I'm a assistant team manager um, for a mental capacity act team um, so adult services Um, so I'm also a best interest assessor and um, I'm also a sitting magistrate as well. Um, so that's kind of another string to my bow. But I'm um, really excited to be here and be back um, doing some podcasts. So that's really exciting. Thanks, Vince, for having me. Right. I should really have given myself some sort of introduction, shouldn't I? I should, I, should I do that? I, I, yeah, I, I think you should. <laughs> I'm not as busy as you, Tilly, but I will do the same. Um, for people that don't know me, like I say, my name is Vince Peart. I am the content editor for Social Work News, as well as being a columnist for them. Alongside my work with Social Work News, I'm an independent social worker. I'm also a part-time assistant team manager in a local authority team. That kind of makes me sound it kind of makes me sound busy, that doesn't it, Tilly? It's like three, three jobs there, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You and you are a busy man, Vince. Whenever I speak to you, you're always working. So you you have the title of being busy. I I I appreciate that. My lazy teenage self would be proud of myself right now when all I used to do was play computer games and hang out. Um, tell our listeners something that you enjoy doing in your in your spare time, Tilly. When you do get some spare time, what do you like to get up to when you when you have the occasional half flexi day squeezed in twice a year what do you get up to my friend I don't know if I even really have much spare time anymore I mean I pick up independent assessments when I'm not working um, in my regular day job but no when I do have um, a rare moment off um, I've got three horses um, just squeezed into my life as well so whenever I'm not working to earn money to keep them who I hardly ever get to see because I'm always working uh, you can find me riding and competing on my horses what about you what what are your passions outside of social work hi I've got two children um I've got five cats now we had three cats yeah yeah we had three but one of them got pregnant but the kit, the okay. kittens, the kittens that this cat has produced are gorgeous. So, not not to start off on a sad note on the podcast, but um, my daughter had a cat, and it got ran over. It was only one year old, and uh, my um, parenting style is one of distraction. Oh, you're upset about a cat? Would you like a new cat, daughter? 
Yes. So we went on, it was not a gum tree. It's like, it's like a cat, pets for homes or something it's called. It's like basically, a, it's a cat gum tree. It's almost like a, a, a Tinder for cats where you can match yourself with cats. And we went on and she picked a rag doll, right? So we went and got this rag doll. Six days later, another cat in our family died. Oh my God. We had two cats dead in six days. What did I do, Tilly? Hello. Yeah. You know, I got a ragdoll off you last week. Have you got one left? Yes, we have. So we end up with these two ragdoll sisters and the old cat, Claudie. Um, this summer, I thought the cats used to look out the window and scratch and want to get out. I thought I'd let the cats out for a treat. They weren't muted, but I thought, you know, go wild cats. Um, one oh, of them dear. rapidly became pregnant. Um <laughs> And there were two potential dads. One was, you know, um, one was a, a local bit of a, um, you know, just a mixed cat, uh, a mixed breed cat. And the other one You're was... You're not being a, cat racist, are you then? No, no. I, 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 well, I, I, mixed breed cat. I think that's the best way you can describe it. Um, and then the other one was a Maine Coon. And I was like, oh, I, I was hoping it was the Maine Coon. Uh, yeah, please be the Maine Coon's kittens because I thought the combination of Maine Coon and Ragdoll would be beautiful and lo and behold you know when these kittens came out it was Maine Coon um, we're having a bit of an issue with the kittens at the moment though so um, the two Ragdolls named after Disney characters obviously because you know my six year old daughter was heavily involved in the naming process the two Ragdolls are Simba and Nala uh, no, the two ragdolls oh. are the two. Uh, I've given away the name of the. That's the kitten's name. The two ragdolls are Jasmine and Belle, named after Disney princesses. And then when Jasmine had two babies, you know, the daughter wanted to call them Simba and Nala, so called them Simba and Nala. But I like the name Champion, so Simba and Nala, they're boy and a girl. So I've started calling Simba Champion. And my son, who is two years old, three years old, should I say, he's just ten three this summer. Um, he's also called the champion. So there's kind of like a bit of an issue over naming rights to the cats right now. My daughter's position, it's a fair one, is that it was her cat that had those two kittens, so she should have naming rights. My position is I was the one that bought the kittens. I'm the one that does all the work for the kittens. And it was my action to let Jasmine out that led to the kittens. So it might end up in court. I mean, there are a lot of social work related themes that you've just <laughs> thrown into that cat story there. We've got missing cats, teenage pregnancies yeah. and uh, goodness knows. There's a lot in there, but yeah. I love it. And I love the fact that they're Disney characters um yeah. because as you well know Vince I am an avid Disney fan myself and you can often find me if I'm not working or looking after the horses I will be curled up on the sofa watching Disney Plus because what else would a girl almost 30 be doing on a on a weekday night so in that case Tilly are you are you camp Simba or are you camp champion Oh, Simba, all the way. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but um, yeah, I will support your daughter through and through in that court process if we ever get that far. Right. If, if, if any of you guys is listening to this, drop us a message, you know, send us a message on Social Work World or Social Work News um, social media channels or find Tilly on Twitter. And uh, yeah, send, send us a message whether you are Camp Simba or camp champion. Um, so that's kind of my life at the moment. So as well as having five cats, I've got two kids. When I do get a bit of spare time, um, I like football. 
not playing so much these days. He's like playing, but I like watching it. Um, boxing and uh, cooking and going out on my push bike. I got myself a push bike a couple of months back. So I'm getting out and about on that. And that that's about it. But it's mostly mostly work kids and kittens with the occasional uh, football or boxing uh, match on a weekend. Not not I'm not involved in that. You know, I am I am going to a bare knuckle boxing match in a couple of weeks' time, but I am not competing. Um, I scared I scared my mother when I said that. Says I'm off bare knuckle boxing next weekend. She's like, "You're not what are you doing, Vince? You're not getting involved in that. Is it another hairbrand idea?" I says, "No, I'm not. I'm not getting involved in bare knuckle boxing. I'm going to watch it, but I'm not participating." I think that's fair enough. I, I wouldn't want to see you at the end of that fight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, listen, On that note. <laughs> oh, so we, yeah, it's, we've covered a lot there, haven't we? We've covered kittens and me potentially bare knuckle boxing. Welcome to Social Work Radio, guys. You probably didn't expect that. Um, anyway, the format of the show. Basically, we're going to be recording the show every week. It should be coming out Friday morning. GMT. So for our listeners uh, um, in Australia um, and on that side of the world, expect it Friday afternoon. For our American listeners, people on that side of the world, expect it late Thursday or in the very early hours of Friday morning every week. For those in Europe, uh, GMT, like me and Tilly, expect it around 8, 9am on a Friday morning. We'll be coming out on a weekly basis. Tilly will be our co-host. I'll be the main host. And we will also have guests coming on the show. Um, we trying to get the most interesting and unique guests in social work that we can. We don't just want to present you guys with the same things you've heard time and time again. Uh, our main ethos of this show is to present you the kind of stories that Myself and Tilly and our other writers produce for you on Social Work News, stories that are relevant to frontline social workers, stories that matter to social workers who are out there doing the job, like me and Tilly, on a daily basis. So we're going to try and get you the most interesting guests from all over the world who've got a story to share and who can hopefully add something to your lives as frontline social work practitioners, whether that be education, whether that be training, whether that be learning, or whether that be simply me discussing cat naming rights with somebody. Hopefully there will be something there for all of you. Generally speaking, we'll pick one sort of main topic and one topical subject of the week to go through. This week, Tilly, um, as people will have seen who have clicked the podcast link and seen the title, we are going to be asking, why are 67% of social workers considering leaving the profession. This topic comes up time and time again in terms of social work retention. The reason why we are discussing it this week is on Social Work News, we ran a poll on the main website. Many of you listening to this will likely have clicked it. Um, we asked a simple binary question, are you considering leaving the profession? 67% of people who clicked that link said they were. This roughly sort of matches up with a general feeling that we pick up on social media comments and so on. 
that there are a lot of people leaving the profession. And many of the surveys that have discussed this with a far wider range of people and a larger sample group have also found that a significant number of people are considering leaving the profession. So while 67% is very high when you compare it to other studies of this type, we do have to bear in mind that this was a simple click button on the website. So maybe didn't have the same sort of rigor as a lot of those academic studies. But the fact of the matter is, is that 67% of people have told us they're considering leaving the profession. What do you think of that, Tilly? Just to put it over to you first. Um, do you think 67% of people really have, at some point, given some consideration to leaving the profession in the near future? Absolutely. And I, I think you'd be probably hard pushed to find a social worker that hasn't ever at least considered it. I think... Oh, I've considered it many times, especially when I'm having a bad day or a bad week, when I'm just stacked with cases or things are going wrong. I think who doesn't scroll through various job adverts looking for, can I go and work in a supermarket and get the same pay than I do as a social worker? Um, I think I would say it's probably that 67 percent is quite a low figure I would probably expect it to be more but perhaps people when they clicked on the poll were thinking am I considering leaving seriously considering leaving in the next year or so perhaps and oh, that's a it's a sad figure I mean as I've said in my in the columns in the ask the panel columns that we do for social work news we had a question recently about would you ever consider do, do you think you you'll retire in the profession do you think mm. that, that you'll be a social worker for the rest of your life and I when I was thinking about my answer to that I said I, I hope I am um, even if I'm not a frontline social worker or or within sort of lower levels of management like I am now I would hope that I will retain my social worker title for the rest of my days because I'll probably die in the job um, but I think it's it's got to the point where social work salaries are not going up with the rate of inflation like any profession really um certainly in the public sector and we've got pressures that are getting worse and worse i mean when i first met you Vince what four or five years ago now I remember we were having these similar conversations around yeah. things that have never been as bad as they are now and yet we're in 2022 now, almost 2023, and things have continued to just get worse. And I don't want this to sound like a doom and gloom podcast because I don't want to be, certainly don't want to be putting anyone off joining the profession or making out that it's always awful because I genuinely love social work and, and I don't want to do anything else. But I think our profession needs to face facts that actually we're overworked undervalued and underpaid and the working conditions are not the best certainly for, for social workers in local authority caseloads are at their all-time highest we've got more people needing more support than we can provide and that's not new but it's certainly getting worse and worse so like for me in adult services we've got an aging population that is continuing to get older and sicker mm. and we've got people who 
are not in a position to give up care to, to give up their professions um, and be carers for informal carers for their family members because they can't afford to do that because we have such terrible um, government support packages for carers. We've got people that are living further apart than they've ever lived before. We have those those networks have broken down that we would have seen maybe 50 years ago where people stayed much closer together. We've got globalization, people moving on around all over the place. We've got You've also got more women in work, haven't you? That's another thing. Yeah. Yeah. If you look at informal care, now, yeah, now it's almost always women that tend to fulfil those roles, certainly Mm -hmm. the vast majority. But certainly if you go back 50 years in the time frame you were talking about, it was universally women who would bear that responsibility. And most of those very likely wouldn't have been in work and certainly not in full-time work. So that's another societal shift that's happened, hasn't it? It is. And unequally with advances in medicine and healthcare, mm-hmm. we've got people that are living longer, um, people with disabilities that would have sadly and tragically died going yes. back 20 years. Yes. Um, a lot of our children with disabilities maybe wouldn't have seen their 18th birthday. They wouldn't have, have gone into adulthood but now are which is brilliant we want people to be living longer but that does put a pressure on services um and that is stretching our profession and our infrastructure around our profession to a breaking point and then looking across into children's services you've got the the impact of things like austerity um tightening of of thresholds lack of early intervention services so that people are only coming to the attention of services when they're at crisis point which again is putting more and more pressure on the social workers that are picking up those cases um so i think we're all doing more with less and burnout is at an all-time high and i don't really see that that's going to come down anytime soon i think we're going to see a sort of tragic vicious circle really of more social workers leaving the profession putting greater pressure on existing teams so then then those social workers leave and I think it's just gonna it's it's spiraling unless the government and society step in and do something to secure health and social care more broadly um, and and create that that welfare system that we should have had or what we did originally have when it first came into play at the end of World War Two. But so I don't want this sounds- to be all about doom and gloom. So. No, 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 certainly. We, we, we want to look at some solutions for this. So let, let's just break down some of the things that you've said there, Tilly, and let's look at some of those sort of key reasons that you've identified, and I'm sure most people would, uh, you know, understand themselves and would certainly resonate with people the themes you've picked out so let's pick the first one that you mentioned wages um you said social workers are underpaid uh if we have a look at the average social work wage let's take adult services simply because that's you know your field um the social care uh social care skills report came out last week the state of the workforce it showed that the average adult social worker gets paid £38,000 a year, which is bang on what the average wage in the country is. So whilst, you know, subjectively we might say it's poor, 
uh, it's a significant amount higher than minimum wage. We've also had the news yesterday that social workers in the United Kingdom will receive a £1,925 a year pay rise backdated to April 2022. If that adds on to the average wage, you know, that takes the average wage up to £40,000. How much should social workers be paid? How much should how much do we have to pay social workers to stop 67% of them wanting to leave the profession? Well, I think wages is only ever part of it, but I would very much dispute that £38,000. I certainly don't know many frontline social workers unless they're employed by perhaps agencies that are on that salary. That's not the salary that, that any frontline social worker that I'm aware of, certainly in, in the southwest of, of England, that there's nowhere near that. That's so what should a social worker be on then? Because I, I, I agree with you on that one. I think that £38,000 must take into account senior figures, which is dragging it up. I mean, my my first social work wage was £22,000 a year. Um, and I was spending a massive chunk of that on travel because the office was an hour away. Um, I was having to drive maybe 100 miles a day. And those were the days where you had to be in the office every single day. Nobody even heard of loan working. When I started as a social worker 10 years ago, it just wasn't a thing. What? How much should social workers be paid, Teddy? How, how much do we have to pay social workers in order to motivate people to stay in the job? Well, I'm no economist. And I don't know if I can actually put a <laughs> How much do you want, Tilly? Right, it might, right, it's like Dragon's Den. You know, I'm sat here. How much can yeah. I get away Shark with asking tank. for? Shark Tank for our American, for our American listeners. Um, Dragon's One Den million pound tank. a day. Do you think that Pitch was... <laughs> what are you worth? What are you worth, Tilly? How much do you want? And the thing is, you can't put a price on, no. on it because... Social workers are often in life and death situations, as are our allied professionals. I'm, I'm talking about health, emergency services, education, those services. We all come under the same umbrella with public services. Without our dedication to our jobs and our sacrifice of personal time i think if, if people worked to rule the system would collapse within a day telly um, telly i feel like i'm interviewing a politician here and oh, an answer from i'm you. not i'm, I'm I, you, you would I'm, fit in very well you would fit in very well in our political sphere at the moment oh, i'm asking you for a figure that. my friend how much do you want to be paid how much do you want to be paid Ren? oh again you like a politician <laughs> but I'll, I'll i'll stand up i'll, I'll answer this one um, my view would be is that the average social work wage should leave you able to afford the trappings of a lifestyle that you have to have. You should be able to pay for a mortgage on your house. You should be able to run a car. You should be able to put food on the table. You should be able to you know, go on holiday once a year. You should be able to give your kids things that they need if you've got children, such as school clubs, rainbow fees, you know, um, swimming classes, dance classes and things like that. Um, I think that you shouldn't have to go without what most people would expect a professional should be able to afford. So I'm looking at it at an altruistic level. I'm not saying, you know, I should have enough so I can, you know, go and bloody 
go and splash out money down the casino or go on a bender every weekend. Um, I, I think that social work wages should be in line with inflation and should enable social workers to afford the things they need to have a comfortable existence. You shouldn't go without and you shouldn't have to strive to be a social worker. And I answer a weekly column, a social work supervision column for social work news. And we get lots of emails in um, from people who are struggling to be a social worker. And it's even worse when you break it down an hourly rate. Now, a lot of people might say, oh, wow, if it really is £38,000 an hour, oh, you're getting a lot of money if you you know, divide that over 37 hours, uh, 37 hours a week. It's around £20 an hour or something, uh, which is not far off double the minimum wage. But we don't just work 37 hours a week, do we, Tilly? And we don't get paid overtime. <laughs> and we don't get time off in lieu. We don't get double time for weekend. And therein lies the issue in a lot of people. Um, we've got a columnist who writes for us anonymously. And uh, I don't. I think it isn't out yet. She sent me to edit it, but I think it's going to be out in a couple of weeks' time. Um, her boyfriend has actually encouraged her to leave the profession and has gone so far as to say she's stupid for being a social worker because he's worked out that by the hour she would get paid more working at the, their local supermarket. So that's my issue with wages is that I don't think we are paid commensurately for the effort. I think it is leaving more and more social workers unable to afford the basic trappings of a, of a normal, everyday existence that you need to get by in life. And I think the fact that we work on average about 10 hours a week for free is a travesty. It really is. So there's, I haven't given you a figure. If I had a figure, you still haven't given 25 me a pound an hour. <laughs> Every social worker should be on 45,000 pound a year, 50,000 pound a year. There we go. You can have an extra five grand, my friends. You should all be on 50, 52. You should get a thousand pound a week. 52,000 pound a year is what I am saying social workers should be on. Are you happy with that, Timmy? Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, you would deb- no. is- <laughs> do, do you want 52? Are you going to take my offer of £52,000 a year? I mean, it's more than I'm earning now, so... There we <laughs> go. So, bang, <laughs> sold the titty. So that's the number one thing, wages. Um, burnout and staff retention. Let's tackle these together because they kind of go hand in hand um, a lot of, well, most of the time. Sometimes people are leaving for promotions and better wages, but the majority of the time that I hear people leave the profession for good. We're not talking about leaving positions because, again, that that's quite often for convenience. It fits around childcare. It's less hours. It's more hours. It's higher wage. It's a promotion. There's, there's, reasons, there's reasons for moving positions that aren't really linked to the 67% of people wanting to leave the job for good. Burnout is a massive reason for people leaving forever. Let's talk personally here, Tilly, okay? but without giving any details. The people you've known personally that have burnt out and left for good, what have been the drivers behind that? Um, I think a big one is compassion fatigue, where you're just hearing the most horrific stories on a day-to-day basis owing to the nature of the job that we're doing. And it gets to the point where it impacts on people's mental health. Um, 
you've got the, the added stresses of too much paperwork, too little time, too high a caseload, too many pressures in the bureaucracy that we face every day that people just get to the point where they can't do it anymore. And I think that's been most of the time, most of the people that I've seen who have burnt out, that's, it's been a combination of things, mm. but it's, it gets to the tipping point. I like to think of it like balance scale. So you've got the good aspects of the job and the bad aspects. Yeah. And it's when those bad aspects outweigh the good, you're no longer seeing that those positive outcomes are compensating for the times when it's really hard. And if you, if it, if, anyone is ever in a job where it's impacting on their personal lives and mental health and it, it's stopping them living the life that they want to live then you you need to leave you need to put yourself first you, you can't pour from an empty cup mm. and I think that's that's probably the most common forms of burnout that we see I don't know if that's been your experience yeah, we did. We 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 did a really interesting column. I can't remember who wrote it. My apologies. It's, I I always get them mixed up. We've got two uh, anonymous columnists who reg. We have a lot of anonymous columnists, but you know we have, we have two regularly. Um, one goes by the name of Millie, and one goes by the name of Maisie. And I quite often get them mixed up of who's. <laughs> so apologies, Millie and Maisie. Um, you're both brilliant. I love you both, but um, I do occasionally get you mixed up. Um, so I can't remember if it was Minnie or Maisie, but the, the headline was, sometimes it feels like I care too much to be a social worker. And it really resonated with me. It really touched me because um, I, I edit some of them before they go up and have a quick look over. So I, I'm lucky I get to read them before anyone else. And it really resonated with our readers too. It got thousands and thousands of clicks and hundreds of comments. And a lot of people were like, thank God for saying that because a lot of people felt that it was easier to shut their emotions off and that, you know, the the more they went on, the less they felt. They almost became numb to that vicarious trauma because the opposite was, as you've said there, Tilly, you take on far too much and uh, you just can't cope. But it's dangerous. If you, if you feel that you have to do that, you can end up losing your empathy, can't you? It's, there's a balance, isn't there? There's a, like, you talk about that, those scales, but you kind of have to find a balance between empathy and emotional resilience because if you go far too far down the empathetic route you simply can't cope you cannot take all those burdens and live a normal life when you shut the door and get back into your family home if you go far too far the other way and you become too emotionally resilient you end up operating in a robotic manner and you lose sight of the human at the heart of the problems that you're addressing so you've got to find a sweet spot in the middle haven't you yeah, and that's really hard to find. I, I know, I think there's a lot of social workers out there that really struggle to get that balance, and myself included. I don't think any of us are immune from it, but it, it can be dangerous when you fall off either side of that scale. Mm. Um, and the problem is, it, 
when you're looking at what builds your resilience and what helps you walk that fine line, you're looking at good supervision, good support Mm. systems, healthy team cultures, lower caseloads, time to reflect, all of those things that help us counterbalance that. But when you need you a life outside of work as well, don't you? Of course you do. You need yeah. a life outside of work. You you need I I found that I became a lot better at shutting off work when I had my daughter. When now I've got two kids, because I just couldn't. I couldn't, you know. If I had to be home for five o'clock, I had to be home for five o'clock. I I, I learned to say no. Whereas if I go back, you know, ten years when I started out and I didn't have kids. I worked for seven o'clock every night because I was trying to impress my manager. I wanted to prove that I was the best social worker there was. And it might not be a child. It might be three horses. It might be a hobby. It might be friends. It might be coming home and watching Netflix. It could be anything, but you have to, you have to build a life outside of work, don't you? You do. And I think just reflecting on what we were talking about at the beginning, both joking that we didn't have a life outside of work, I think we should probably both say we do. Yeah, 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 work because otherwise we wouldn't continue and I know I work too much I know I do too many hours but equally I'm very fortunate to be in the position that I can switch off from work and actually I shut down my computer most days I mean there's always times when you wake up in the middle of the night thinking gosh I need to do something the next morning but there's always going to be people or cases that need more attention but generally speaking when work's done work's done and if you haven't got that then no wonder why people are burning out so quickly yeah it's uh it 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 is difficult um let's talk about another two reasons that you gave um these kind of work hand in hand with each other austerity and a lack of services um, social workers being asked to do more with less, social workers having higher caseloads than they should. The societal systems that should be in place to pick up when people's friends and families can't support them, either as older people or friends and family can't support younger people, where I become involved um, in a child protection capacity. What impact is that having on social work retention? What's the impact on social workers individually of not having the services they need to make a valid difference in the lives of the people that they're supporting? It's like wading through treacle. It's like, how do you even begin to address some of the problems that people are facing when you haven't got the right systems? I think there's so many issues that come up in people's lives that could be fixed with more money or more services. And yeah, you just, without that around you, you can't be an effective social worker. You need time and money. Those are the two key things. And without that, you're just fighting a losing battle. And it can be soul destroying as as a social worker that's had to go to many what were panels, funding panels, or well, we're not allowed to call them funding panels anymore. They're things like forums and case discussion meetings where we're not allowed to talk about money until the last bit. But ultimately, we've got budget holders that are having to be accountable for millions of pounds less than they would have had 
five, ten years ago, well, certainly before um, a Conservative government came into force and austerity started. But without that, so much of social workers' time and effort is put into battles around funding and services. And if there was less, if you were, if you had to spend less time and effort doing that, you'd have more time to do the direct work with people and the actual therapeutic side, which all of us want to do because that's the fun bit in social work. It's not always fun, but it, it's the interesting. We're that, though, are we, Tony? Social workers, and this, this, this it, it lies at, at the heart of, well, actually, it's one of my many issues with the social work education system. Um, particularly if you can p- compare our experiences in the United Kingdom to the experience of our colleagues in North America, social work and sort of counselling is more closely aligned in North America and the skill set is, is higher. I've got to be honest, it takes you longer to become a social worker in America. The trainings are more robust. The accreditation and licensing system is a lot more robust and thorough than it is here in the United Kingdom. That's not to say the American social workers are better than us, although they might say that. I'm not going to say that. Um, <laughs> no no, no um, wars, please, between no, social no, workers no, in different no. countries. No, no we're, we're not, we are not going to start a war of revolution between America and the UK over social workers. North America, USA and the UK over social workers. However, my point still stands. It, 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 it's, it's a lot more, there's a lot more hard skills involved in social work. And the accreditation system and licensing system is more thorough and it does take you longer. Now, the point I'm making there, Tilly, and the reason I've uh, just interrupted is we don't have those skills you're talking about. You know, I I, I, I had to do a counselling degree, counselling course, should I say, of my own, um, in order to get the skills that my social work master's and previous degree in child and family studies didn't give me. So we can talk about wanting to do direct work, but are we actually equipped and qualified to do that direct work? I think it depends on the type of direct work. I mean, you don't need a a counselling degree to be able to offer some solution-focused problem-solving to people or um, supporting a care provider with an adult to come up with some different behaviour management strategies. A lot of the work that social workers do when it's not about case management and funding mm. or, or or the assessment or like protection side of it, safeguarding stuff that we do, is around helping people figure out what they've got, where they want to go and how they're going to get there. I don't think it takes a huge amount of, of skills to be able to do that. Sometimes just being a good listener and being a outsider from that family or individual circumstances can help you be that sounding board. Now, I'm not saying that that's going to work for everyone. There is clearly people that require very highly skilled professional input from, from counsellors or psychologists, but there are equally a huge amount of people that just need someone to talk to and talk things through if they're isolated and they don't have those systems around them if you've got someone that's had a bad experience themselves perhaps they they weren't raised in the best way and to break those cycles 
you sometimes just putting in some time with those people will help is an intervention in itself so so why do you need a social work degree to do that why do you need and and this lends into a bigger argument so what why do you need if, if a lot of the people we support with we support and work with just need someone to be there and just need someone to discuss the problems and talk things through and help them get solutions and as you said you don't need you don't need hard skill sets and specific skills in order to do that. Why do we need to be professionally accredited, and why do we need to have spent three or five years at university to have that professional title? Because the argument is, and I think it's going to come soon. The argument is that many of the roles that are undertaken by social workers do not need professional accreditation do not need a degree which we just talked about wages if we lose that professional protection wages will go down yeah and i i think in adult services this is probably where it differs a little bit from children's services so back a few years ago probably around the time when the care act came in back in 2014 there was a drive for a lot of the assessors to be non-qualified social workers and there was a lot of social workers that lost their jobs or were absorbed into other services because local authorities and various government departments felt that a lot of the assessments under the care act and support planning and case management could be done by people that weren't qualified social workers yet now we're in a position sort of eight years later where we've got so much statutory safeguarding and mental capacity work and court work that is overwhelming our social workers we don't have enough social workers that can do that and that is that is highly skilled specialist work that you train to do and you you hone it within the job but although I'm not saying for one second that I learned how to do that within university because you know Vince well enough I mean well enough now to know that I'm not a biggest fan of social work education in the in its current form but equally it does give you the tools to be able to go on and specialize as a social worker in certain areas and I know that people that don't have that social work qualification aren't even in a position to undertake some of our more complex capacity assessments but if they're going through court the judge won't even look at them if if you haven't got a social work qualification or a or an occupational therapist um or some nurses can do it as well but you've you've got to have that professional registration that shows that you can critically reflect and provide a more academic oversight of some of these assessments and problems that people are facing and whilst I'm not saying that that non-qualified social workers don't have those skills going through a degree proves that you do have those skills and that's probably where where it's headed to it in adult services I think we'll see a shift in the fairly near future where actually local authorities have to employ a whole new load of social workers because they can't meet demands. Where are we going to get them from? Where are we going to get them from? Well, I don't know. I don't know. And that might be where wages get driven up. I'm hopeful. Well, they will. It it will. You know, the the, the market, you know, we live in a 
capitalist society, you know, the market, you know, you can't book the market if, you know, supply and demand, you know, if social workers aren't there, you have to get them somehow. And inevitably, it's the same as anything wages will go up. The reason I'm making those points there, Tilly, isn't to devalue social workers at all. It's just, I, I think we need to be a lot more ambitious about what social work can achieve and what social workers can achieve. I think we need to be far more skilled than what we are. Um, if I think of my specialist training as a social worker, I had to pay for that all myself. I had to pay and self-fund my PAMS assessments, which is uh, specialist assessments for parents who've got learning difficulties. I had to pay for my parent assess training, which is a similar um, framework for assessing parents with additional needs. I had to pay and uh, go through a, a year-long counselling course to give me skills that you know were, were already ever going to be used in you know the application of my social work practice and did make me a better social work practitioner. Um, all of those things I had to do because my employer didn't offer them or my employers that I've been with haven't offered them. University didn't provide me with any of those specific assessment skills either. Now, the argument from universities when I raise this is, you know, it's like a driving test, you know, passing university simply shows that you, you're able to do the job and you're safe to be on the roads and yet you actually learn how to drive when you're out there. So you learn how to do it on the job, which I think is a, a limited and dangerous mindset, to be perfectly honest, because we should be doing far better with our students. But the whole point of what I was asking there today is I, I just think we need to be a lot more ambitious for our profession. Um, we, we should be able to do more um, because most of the time when I'm, I'm an independent social worker, so I, I see care plans all over the country, and I'm guilty of this myself. Most of the time, um, social workers are, are doing hardly anything at all in terms of direct practice. You know, we refer to a domestic violence program. We refer to a drug and alcohol program. We refer to a parenting course. We chair meetings. We assess but in the actual interventions, it's done by other people. And it's been that way for as long as I've been a social worker. You know, this is no criticism. That's just what the role is. I would like to see specialist social workers. I would like to see, you know, my field, specialist child protection social workers that held lower cases, but did far more with the people they did support. And I think that might help. Um, that's a topic for a whole other night, though. Um <laughs> We spoke there about, you know, me and you had known each other for five years or so now, and we were having these conversations five years ago. Um, have things really gotten worse in oh, the past 10 years? Yeah. Yes. How? So much worse. How have things gotten worse? Tighter budgets. Every year our budgets are squeezed. Um, so we've And we've got less services every single year. I mean, in adult services, our care markets have never been as bad as they have been. Things like Brexit have contributed enormously. COVID, when we had those a temporary time when mandatory vaccinations became um, a requirement for care workers. So they lost huge droves of carers. And we've got a private care market now that's got out of control. It's people are picking and choosing what what services they offer to people they're picking the easy options and then our most vulnerable people are left without services this is 
I, I until COVID, I had never experienced a position where in the entire local authority where I was working, there was not a single residential or nursing home bed that could take someone out of hospital. That was unheard of pre-COVID. I mean, there was always something. It might be not the person's first choice, but you could get some form of care. Whereas in, since, well, during COVID and since COVID, um, pandemic has, has sort of restrictions have eased. Things have not got any better. The care market is just squeezed and squeezed to the point where we've got people that are just stuck in hospitals and A&Es are filling up, ambulances aren't able to go and support people. It's every day we're getting emergency alerts from local acute hospitals and community hospitals closing their doors to patients because they can't get people out. And I think, yeah, I can only see it getting worse. So, yes, I think it, it it has got so much worse since when we first met five years or so ago. Um, but please give me some hope, though, because I don't, <laughs> like I said earlier on, what are we going to do about this? We, we'll get to that. We're going, we're going to save that to the end, OK? We're going, we're, we're going, we're going to save our solutions to the end. Uh, your solutions. I'm going to press you like a politician again. <laughs> um, in, so in terms of what I've seen change... Um, Placements are a lot harder to find. Um, the, the the care system for young people is is overburdened. Um, there aren't more people per year coming into care. Now, that figure isn't going up, but there are more people than ever in care because obviously people young people and children when they tend to go into the care system and become looked after they don't tend to leave uh there there is some movement being done now uh where um project teams are brought in and they do great work in trying to re-examine the cases where children have been in the care system and look, well, you know, can mum or dad cope now? Are there family members that weren't explored before? And I'd like to see more of that. I'd like to see more of the, those specialist teams who re-examine to see whether it is care really the best option now. Obviously, things change a lot in a, in, in a couple of years, particularly for older teenagers who perhaps can um, you know, are less vulnerable. You know, say children were taken from parents' care when they were a lot younger, Parents have changed and teenagers are older and can manage more of their own needs, uh, maybe some support and home. I'd like to see more of that. And hopefully, you know, we, we can start to see, you know, these numbers coming down. But as it stands, Tilly, it's incredibly difficult um, to try and source placements for young people in care. The other key, well, the two other things I'll discuss, um, court system. Um, we tend to be getting less time in court now and we tend to not have the same judge uh, for a lot of cases. And that can be very, very difficult because obviously you, you try to want the same judge in all those cases. Uh, and quite often you've seen changes of social workers midway through court proceedings, sometimes changes of guardians as well. And you're lacking consistency for children when 
decisions are being made that are literally going to shape their entire lives, decisions such as who are they going to live with, where are they going to live, are siblings going to be separated, should children live with mum or dad or auntie, uncle, cousin, brother, grandma, whoever. Um, you need you need the best social workers on those cases. You need the most experienced social workers on those cases. And you need the same social worker throughout the course of proceedings, which should be done in 26 weeks, but inevitably often go over that when needed. The third major thing I've seen is a massive loss of experienced social workers. Um when I started out in social work, it was unheard of to anyone to be, you know, service manager or manager who, you know, had less than maybe seven or eight years experience. Now I'm regularly seeing people become assistant team managers with two years experience. I'm regularly seeing people become managers with four years experience. I have heard of some people becoming service managers with five, six years experience. Um, whilst I'm certainly not doubting the skill set of those people and those decisions may be totally right. They may be the best people for the job and you know they may have got more experience in two years than I have had in 10 years. But the fact of the ma- matter remains that that never happened when I started out in social work. What also didn't happen when I started out in social work was social workers going straight from being newly qualified into agency work. Um, I had to wait two years before I became an agency social worker. It was always my intention. When I became an agency social worker, I was very, very lucky to get that position after only two years. I was very lucky. I was basically told that, you know, well, there's very little chance we'll put you forward. If you do well in an interview, you might get the job. Now, when I've been in managerial roles, we've been recruiting people into agency who've had maybe six months, a year's experience. Again, the people I've recruited have been brilliant, so I'm not criticising people who've had that level of experience. I just have to point out that that has been a change. It used to be an unwritten rule you had to have two years' experience before you could be an agency worker. You had to have four years' experience before you could be an assistant team manager. You have to have six or seven years' experience before you could be a manager because the competition was there, Dilly. There was more competition. So if you only had four years' experience, you might be going up against five or six people who've had more experience. That's a massive change. So those are the three things. Placement options are a lot less. The court system is a lot more difficult to navigate for families and the experience is not there. Does that chime with adult social work? Do you see similar things in adults to what I see in children's? Yeah, we do. Um, although a lot of the children's services staff that, that get fed up end up coming over to adult services, sometimes thinking that it's going to be in a perhaps less pressurised environment. And then they find quite quickly that actually it's a different pressure, but it's still equally as pressurised. Um, yeah, we. I mean, I. it's difficult because I've been qualified now for seven going on eight years. And I'm in quite a, a senior position now. Are you one of those people I was just criticising? No, I'm not. I, no, because I get it. I, I get that I haven't been as qualified for as long as other people. And people might look at me now and think, well, you haven't had that longevity of experience. How are you in that position? And I, I, 
I welcome that criticism mm. um, because there is sometimes only time and experience thing well just length of time and coming across different situations that come with experience and I think it is a problem across the board I think I would quite welcome having strong competition that's that's challenging you to before you go up higher up the ladder I mean I don't want to go much higher than where I am now I certainly wouldn't want to go heads of service director level I don't think that that would be suiting my skill set at all but I can see that that's being that is a real problem for the profession and when you don't have frontline social workers that have been there for very long those newly qualified workers that are coming into the team aren't learning from people that have got years of experience I remember when I qualified I was working with people that had been in the team for like 20 odd years and they were a wealth of knowledge and they've all since left and that's a tragedy you've lost all of that experience and I think social work is often criticized for being a young profession compared to things like nursing and doctors and these professions that have been around for generations social work is still fairly new we've only seen modern social work sort of 70s 80s onwards really um so if you're losing that longevity of experience, our profession isn't going to get out of that infancy stage anytime soon, because as soon as people get trained up, they move on, and then therein lies your attention problem. I think a lot, a lot of the time when you think about people going into positions, it, it's, 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 that's just how it is. You know, if if, if you lose the experience and the best workers rather than the more experienced ones have got to step up. And, you know, just, just to say again, you know, certainly there's no criticism. I mean, I'd been, it took me eight years as a social worker before I got my first management position. Um, and now I'm an assistant team manager. So I went from social worker to manager, then back to assistant just because I needed to work less hours. And obviously, you know, you can't really be a part time manager so certainly no criticism there you know if you if you if you are good enough you are old enough if you are good enough you are experienced enough it's just something i've observed and obviously you've seen the same um but tilly you're not leaving the job i'm not leaving the job um what about all the social workers who are thriving and doing well uh, firstly, why don't we hear their stories as much? Why don't we hear all the good news about social workers? And secondly, um, what are those 33% doing or what's different about those people compared to the people who do want to leave the profession? Well, we need to celebrate the social workers that are staying and that are channeling that longevity of experience we need to look after those and nurture them and keep them where we can um i think we need way more positive news stories out there and that's something that i think is really exciting with social work news not to promote social work news or anything because obviously this is a social work news podcast but equally i think we do share some of those good news stories as much as we can um, we don't probably share enough and it would be great to hear more people's stories 
out there who have had positive differences for people's lives because uh, you can share them anonymously and change the details enough so that they you're maintaining your confidentiality but without those sparks of hope that keep the profession alive I think it's really easy to get into that doom and gloom cycle and that's what I've been trying to avoid during this podcast but not doing very well about it but I will always say I love social work we make different positive differences to people's lives day in day out we're the safety that net there for people who have no one else to turn to and we are valuable and we do a good job the majority of the time and it's only when a tragedy happens like someone dies or or someone's injured when these news stories these negative news stories hit the headlines and people say how awful social workers are and how rubbish we're all doing at our jobs but that's not the reality and I think on an individual level the people that we come across actually often do like our interventions yeah it's a fair point you make there because at the end of the day um we we do try and promote positive news stories on social work news some of which are right myself um we also do uh, sort of more light-hearted pieces whether that's columnists whether it's you know something i might write um couple of months back I wrote someone about the appealing life of a social work nomad where I essentially spent half an hour um, writing about how much I would like to be a traveling social worker going around the country in a camper van um, so we try and do that ultimately though it's the same with all news um, you have to reflect on the negative things and that is what people tend to focus on it is human nature. Look at any news site in the whole world, whether it's social work specific or general news or any professional subject area, and you will tend to find negative news stories. Um, why do I think some people cope better than others then? I think that some of it is just luck, whether that is luck in terms of a good manager, a good workplace, Uh, a caseload that doesn't go awry quite badly and overburden you. I think a fair bit of it is to do with the experiences you had in life before you became a social worker. I think a lot of emotional resilience can be built up if you've gone through difficult experiences yourself. I mean, that can be learned. You know, you you can come into social work without having any adverse experiences and be just as good but I think for some people, myself included in that one, I think if you've gone through adverse childhood experiences, it it can steal you for professional pressures in the workplace. And I think some of it is is skills. I think some of it, um, you know, is time management skills, person centered skills empathy, the ability to plan your work in future, the ability to write fast, those sort of skills which I think can be taught. And then there's, you know, things which help you sort of relieve those pressures when they do come, which again, I think, you know, can be taught. Healthy lifestyle, healthy diet, good sleep, mindfulness, meditation, yoga, um, therapeutic supervision, 
having a life and passion and hobbies outside of work that we touched on earlier. There are certainly, there are things that are a look and that are up to the individual, but I also think there are things that employers can put in place to help relieve the pressures that social workers face without necessarily changing the workload. I think there are ways that, it, that you can keep your current workload but manage it better. And I am not placing the burden of responsibility on the individual social workers to manage that. I'm placing that on employers because we talk a lot about caring for our clients, and rightly so. We don't talk anywhere near as much about caring for our social workers. And in my experience, both as a social worker and a manager, if you look after your social workers well, they will look after their clients well. Oh, 100%. Going back to you can't pour from an empty cup if, if your social workers are a strong and resilient team and you're providing, as a manager, you're providing a supportive environment that fosters critical reflection and good quality conversations and critical thinking practice and and all of those positive things once you've got that in place it makes social work a blooming lot easier than it than it can be if you've not got those things in place so let's end on this point Tilly um because I'm sure, given that 67% of people who responded to our survey were considering leaving the profession, I'm sure that many people listening to this today will be in that position. If somebody was listening, and many of them will be, and were considering leaving their profession, what advice would you give them? I think the best thing that you can do is look at what team you're in and what service and what part of social work you're in sometimes a change is as good as a break and I know certainly from starting off my career in children's services and realizing that child protection was not for me it just didn't suit who I was my personality my skill set moving to adults saved me in some respects because I was thinking of leaving I very very almost went and joined the police force and I'm so glad I didn't because I would have been a terrible police officer. But um, if you are in that position, do some research around what other areas of social work you can go into. Because you have so many transferable skills as a social worker that you there are, there are way many more options than what we're sometimes led to believe. Children's services or adult services It's kind of a binary choice that we're presented with but actually there is different types of social work you you can work for independent voluntary organizations different types of statutory services with a different client group anything Um, or even sometimes in the same field that you're in but just in a different team or a different um, local authority or, or NHS service sometimes just team personalities or management personalities just don't click and that's okay so I would say that if anyone is thinking of of going just try something else before you you do go because you may find that you just haven't found your home yet in social work well said well said my friend um 
I'd probably say a similar thing, to be perfectly honest. You know, a, a bad day doesn't make a bad life. A bad social work job doesn't make a bad career. I think um, a lot of people make the mistake of believing that one difficult job and one difficult situation is enough to write off a career that they've dedicated years and years to. I mean, at a bare minimum, you know, three years of a degree to become a social worker. And I always say to people in this position, you, know, you, you need to draw a line in the sand. If you're really struggling in your current job, you need to put up your boundaries and consider what you will not tolerate anymore. That could be a number on your caseload. That could be how little time your manager gets back to you or how short your supervisions are. It could be your wage. It could be what time you get home on an evening. It could be how many hours you work for free. It could be not working weekends anymore. It might be all of those things. It might be some of those things. It might be none of those things and some things of your own you want to add to that list instead. But either way, I would say to people in this position, you need to say no. You will not take this anymore. You will not take the impact this is having on your personal and professional life anymore. When you've done that, you can then set yourself a window in your current position and say, you know, I'm going to give it two months. I'm going to give it two weeks. I'm going to give it a year, however long you want. You know, set a time that you think you can endure and wait for things to change. And be honest with your manager about it. You know, be honest and say, you know, I'm thinking of leaving. Things are getting too difficult for me. I am trying my best, but it's not working. I want to see improvements. And, and a lot of the time, you do see those improvements. I've worked in many different places in my social work career. And things never stay bad for that long. Things never stay really bad for that long. Um, there's generally improvements that come with a negative offset rating, with a new manager, with a project team being bought in, with new workers being bought in, with a reshuffle, with changes of procedures. There's usually the, the cavalry aren't too far away. Now, that probably doesn't offer that much solace to people that are significantly struggling now, which is why I would always say set yourself a deadline for these non-negotiables. If those non-negotiables aren't breached and things start to improve before the deadline's out, stick it out and see how things go. If they don't and things are getting worse, then then leave. You know, life is too short and it is far too precious to waste doing something you hate just for money. Now, I know social work is a profession, it's a vocation, it's a calling, but at the end of the day, you know, your own life is worth more than something you do for a living. And please do not trick yourself into believing that all you are is a social worker. You're a friend, you're a family member, you're a brother, you're a sister, you're a lover, you're a wife, you're a husband, you're a neighbour, you're a member of your community, you're a human being, you're a very unique person. And being a social worker may form a big aspect of your character, but it's not all you are. You were something else before you became a social worker. You'll be something else after you finish being a social worker. So do try and stick things out as much as you can. Do set those non-negotiables. Do try some of the things that me and Tilly discussed earlier that we believe may help people in these positions. But ultimately, draw that line in the sand and do not, do not work yourself 
into an early grave for a job that would replace you within four weeks. That would be my advice, Tilly. I think that's very sound advice. Well, guys, um, we shall leave on that point. Um, thank you ever so much for tuning in to our first show here at Social Work Radio. Um, we hope you will be back again. If you don't already subscribe to us, please subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, Alexa, Podbean, or any of the other multitude of pod. And I know there's a lot of podcast apps out there, Teddy, because I have to tick the box and publish to them. There are many podcast platforms out there. However you listen to us, do subscribe and consider leaving a review. If you'd like to be on the show or if you would like to suggest any topics for the future, do contact myself via the Social Work News or Social Work World platforms on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. You can also contact me direct via a DM on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Vince Piet SW. Tilly, if our listeners would like to get in contact with yourself, how can they find you on Twitter? Uh, so my Twitter handle is at Tilly, that's T-I-L-L-Y underscore Anya, A-N-Y-A. So that's how you can get in contact with me. I'd love to hear from you. Perfect. And Ben, like I said at the start, do get in touch if you've got views on the champion versus Simba debate. Tilly and my daughter are team Simba. Myself and my son are team champion. Inevitably, I am sure my daughter and Tilly will win out on this matter, given that's what usually happens in these situations. But we'll see. We may get a groundswell of support for Team Champion. We should maybe get a hashtag going, Tilly. Team, do you know what I might do? The next poll we do on the website might not be, are you considering leaving the profession? I may hijack the front page of Social Work News and run a poll whether people want Simba or Champion. Please do. I'd be very interested. <laughs> and Team Simba all the way. Come on, my Team Disney Simba. princesses yeah. and princes out there who, who, yeah, let's let's get Simba and The Lion King being one of the best films of all time. Guys, thank you ever so much for tuning in. This has been Social Work Radio. We will be back next Friday morning, GMT. Once again, thank you ever so much for your time. That's been Social Work Radio, and I've been Vince Tilly. Say goodbye to the world. Goodbye, everyone. We'll speak to you next week.